Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on August the 18th, 2010. For newcomers, you should look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and bookmark all the other sites you'll see there because I do have problems with the com once in a while. So many folk go in at once to, to download. So if you take these alternate sites, and you, especially if you find sticking on download on the com, uh, try these alternate sites and you should find it smoother and quicker if you have any problems. Remember, all the sites listed there too have a lot of transcripts of the talks I've given in English for print up. And you can also go into Alan Watt Sentinel.eu if you want transcripts in other languages. They all carry the same audios, by the way. And while you're there, remember too that I'm the only person on the, the airwaves, I think, who doesn't accept money uh, from advertisers for the show. The ads you hear on this show are paid by advertisers directly to RBN. I don't even know them. And uh, uh, that pays for the airtime. That pays for the staff and equipment and the broadcast. So you help me out with, with my bills by buying the books and the discs and so on that I have for sale. You can also donate if you feel so inclined. And uh, most folk today don't feel so inclined because they expect everything is free. And being taught that uh, for, for a purpose as well. And uh, so, yeah, go buy these articles and so on. There's the books. From the U.S. to Canada, you can buy them with a personal check to Canada. You can also use an international postal order from your post office, and that'll get to Canada fine. And you can use cash, uh, PayPal to donate or to purchase. Just send the donation from PayPal and a separate email with your name, address, and order, and I will get it out to you very quickly. Same across the rest of the world, same options, cash. You've got Western Union across the rest of the world. It's kind of hefty, though, for their fee. MoneyGram, which I think is a bit cheaper. Uh, you can use PayPal to donate or to purchase. Same idea, just send a separate email after your, your, your PayPal donation uh, with your name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. And who, know long, who knows how long this will go on, because... As we well know, there's big, big things afoot right now. You know, whenever you get a, a silence in, in the news, when they even run out of almost trivia to give you, there's big things afoot, big things afoot way above them uh, to bring in the new society. And this is what this is all about, is bringing in the new society. The new world order is to be done this century, the century of change, where genetically inferior types will be gradually killed off. It's already happening, actually through sterilization and through Alzheimer's and various things happening to people with the aerial spraying, the injections, the food, and everything else are weaponized. And this is the century where the elites themselves who get a form of collation treatment and so on and antidotes to all the things they give you, um, they will sail on into the bright rosy future where there's very few people 
to stand in their way for anything. That's really what it's about. That's what a century of change is about. And it was planned long before you were born. It was actually discussed by long before your grandparents were born, in fact, uh, by an elite, an already established dominant minority who uh, bred the right way by having their partners selected for them. Money, marrying money, in a sense, too. Uh, from good families, you understand, the blue bloods, as they call themselves, in the U.S. and in Britain and the British Commonwealth countries. So we're really living through an agenda. The hardest part for most folk is to really get to that conclusion that there is a war on you. They don't really want to believe it. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix. Just going over little bits of history in a sense to when you realize that your grandparents had no idea of the sciences that already existed at a much higher level uh, than basically we do, because we're all, each generation's taught that you're on the cutting edge. And it's always something that mystifies the young when they're growing up. They think, my goodness, look what they've invented in, in my era. Wow. Ooh. And uh, you get carried away with that illusion and that misconception, which is put out there deliberately so that you truly will never figure out that you're not in the cutting edge after all, and that people long ago had much higher sciences, more advanced than you'd ever dreamed to know about. Because, you see, science really is part of warfare. And if you were to take the Darwinian theory, which is put out there, by those who pre-existed Darwin. In fact, Darwin would just belong to the right club uh, and the right lineage uh, to get his names out there in the science uh, world. When you really look at them, you'd always known that science is a big part of warfare. Those who have the more, most advanced sciences generally win the war. And it used to astound me too to, to wonder why soldiers go off abroad every so often to kill people and they don't, apart from the fact they don't really care why they're going to kill, the, the basic propaganda is good enough for them. They're really mercenaries. And it used to astound me when they'd give, uh, come up with a new rifle and be in the newspapers, uh, a new rifle for the, for the British or the American soldier. And there, there's a guy standing with a new thing there that's costing probably ten times as much as the old thing. And it's basically the same type of science that they've had for a thousand years, where powder blows something, a projectile, along a, a barrel, and hopefully you hit your target. Uh, that never made sense to me. I thought, well, with so much progression, why on earth are they still using the same basically obsolete tool? And the reason is to make you think that's the best they've got. That's the cutting edge, something that still puts holes through you. And meanwhile, when they show you the old Flash Gordon Shows from the well, 1920s. They'll still show them sometimes on late night uh, public broadcasting in different places. Uh, they were showing you ray guns, uh, basically microwaves and so on, that could fry people from a distance. 
So it's the same in all areas of science. Uh, that means bacteria, whatever you think is medicine. No, it's for warfare purposes. That's always the most advanced line of, an adv- of investigation uh, for bacteriology and virology is for warfare purposes. So it's the same with any area, same with all kinds of energy. These are high sciences kept in secret with a, with a much higher elite than you ever hear of. The ones down below who are doing research are simply going through the same motions as the the searchers did a long time ago, starting at the bottom and giving you their findings. And that's all very well for those who control. They want you to believe that you truly are on the cutting edge. That way you will say, well, they can't do this yet. You see, they're only working on this yet. And, and, And you're thrown right off the track. It's beautiful. It's never failed. Now, speaking of gunpowder and uh, projectiles, you got to go into the histories of the Bacon family, like Francis Bacon, someone who belonged again to the right organization, a society in his day, uh, a secret type society. Men love fraternities, and they love secrets too, especially when it's going to benefit you personally and financially. But um, a predecessor of his was a friar of the, the Franciscan order, back in about the 11th century A.D., and uh, he's, a, he's a guy, a, a good Catholic Christian, who was a guy who supposedly invented the canon for Britain. And he did all this in a monastery where he used to get uh, um, reprimanded by the habit of, of so often for all these scientific experiments. So you got to wonder on earth, why were, why were they doing this in, in what you think think is monasteries, or maybe that's the best places to do them, the last places you'd ever think of looking. But anyway, as I say, you know, um, you constantly astound yourself, and you have to keep slapping your face once in a while to remind yourself that whatever is published in the newspaper about anything is obsolete. Whatever they give you as science is obsolete. And I knew as a child that the motor car was given a certain time limit for life because I, I, I thought, well, I've been using the same basic internal combustion engine for an awful long time and since everything else is progressing much faster, it's pretty obvious to me that cars would be phased out one day. Otherwise, they'd really go to town and um, and find ways to improve the same system or even use a different system altogether, a better system. When you, when you eventually come into Agenda 21 and m- many of the readings prior to that from the United Nations, they were talking a long time ago about sustainability and the containment of human beings in regions. Containment means you don't travel. Like any totalitarian system, you can't travel outside your area. Therefore, they didn't want people traveling. That also makes sense in a, from a military point of view if you bring in a completely totalitarian society under what guise, uh, whatever, will do, such as um, uh, riots and, and food shortages, which were our plan to come along. And not because we can't grow the stuff, it's because we've been putting the farmers out and five agribusinesses have been taking over the food supply. All you have to do is withhold it and bingo, you've got your starvation. And that's been done on purpose. But yeah, they don't want you traveling outside your area. That's a nuisance when people start traveling around and perhaps even fighting them and, and getting away quickly and all that kind of stuff. Now, I've talked about people like Bertrand Russell, someone who was born with more than just a silver spoon in his mouth. It was a golden spoon. 
and no, no doubt it had uh, diamond-studded handles as well. But you find most of these elites of those days um, were into higher sciences, even more, more higher sciences than we're told of today. They all participated in their own peer group, and they were called peers of the realm, by the way. They met their knighted, and, and uh, they were up the ladder. Uh, they all attended the best schools imaginable for their day. They spoke many languages, too. They had access to very old writings by other scientists and, and so on. And they discussed the usual problem that elites aristocracy have, and that's the peasantry. They were all Malthusians. They believed, oh, one day these peasants out there will outbreed all of us and there'll be chaos to pay for. So they, they weren't going to sit back and let it happen. Definitely not going to sit back and let it happen. But in the meantime, they had a world to conquer, so they needed the peasantry because they used an awful lot of them in wars in those days. They also knew they'd come to an end of that once they had achieved their particular goal. They had worked their own world meetings, often a world intelligentsia elites, all discussing the same topics, Malthusianism, uh, how to control a world, how to de- have control of a world in a post-war situation. And they knew too that you had to create a war of something to make sure that you still had control over the same people. You'd also have to get all the publics to give up their rights because what you're really introducing is depopulation under the guise of a war on whatever. Now it's terror, of course, as we know. And we'd be managed down the road um, much more efficiently if we believed all their hype and their, and their scary scenarios of overpopulation, um, food rationing would have to come, all of that kind of stuff. So they're using that right now. This is the century of change, and that's what they meant by that. It's the century where all of this would be brought in when they saw the victory of a world government that they set up. These characters, as I say, had world meetings about it. They set up the League of Nations, and they set up the United Nations. And then they created hundreds of groups, many, many different groups opposing each other and fighting amongst themselves for power. Uh, these are trivia, to be honest with you, most of them. Uh, and most of the, the topics that they argue about are really trivia when you look at the big picture and what is planned. And as I say, today I was just thinking about the news. There isn't much, really, that's not repetition. It's, oh, are they going to attack Iran or are they not going to attack Iran, and so on and so on. And a little bit of Al Gore popping out saying there's, there's not enough. People got to demonstrate to get them into action to, to put in the whole agenda for the greening program, etc. Because he's got a lot to lose. Not that he will lose. He comes from right family line. These guys don't lose. But they want the carbon taxes to flow, you see, into his coffers. Because he's going to personally benefit an awful lot more. And he's going to make sure that his children down the road um, inherit all his, all his wealth which is really your wealth. Now, to give you an idea of how far sciences go back, just yet this go over old books, and I've done this before on the show to show you that there's nothing new under the sun. And I gave a talk on the radio, and eventually it was put, it, put up by uh, Wise Up Journal, and that was in 19, uh, 2007. And I mentioned Lord Birkenhead, one of the lords 
who was actually a, a high lawyer. He worked for the British Raj. He, he went head of India, head of that, head of, head of different departments for, for, for Britain. And um, he also used a lot of information. He was really into futurism and the, the, the society that they'd planned. He sat in, in their big elites meetings at the top with the, with the Milner Group uh, that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. He used a lot of um, Haldane's documentation on what they planned to bring in. Not something that could happen, but the world they planned to bring in. So this article here is from 2007. I'll read it again here. And it says here, there's nothing new under the sun. Today, people are so overwhelmed with the amount of information and disinformation and uh, just sheer data. They don't know what to make of it all. And that's so true. People are, are, remember what they said, uh, they would deluge you with internet until you'd have information overload. And you don't understand, it's all intentional, that there's hundreds of agencies putting out disinformation to overload your brain. Back with more on this topic after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and I'm back cutting through the matrix, going over an old article I did in 2007 and it was printed in Wise Up Journal when I talked about how the scientists have been around on a very high level for a long time and I don't even go far enough in in this article as just how far back they go. But then I go into this part here and it says, uh, when you look at Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, the book that uh, he wrote, uh, it's a fictional story written in the late 1500s and was published in 1602 concerning a future society which would have its headquarters in the West. They talked about the Atlantic. They meant America, of course. And this is where you call, why I called it the New Atlantis. They call it Solomon's Island, run on virtue and a secret society which would run the whole show. By the way, the secret society lived underground or inside mountains, three miles in or three miles down, one or the other. The public on top would never know they existed. This is comprised of high-tech individuals and scientists. There's there's no way Bacon could have imagined a society which powered itself with an energy which could give off the lights of the sun. And that's what he said, this whole underground complex would be powered by something which could give off the lights of the sun. That's very familiar, isn't it? If you think of nuclear energy, people will think that's impossible. He couldn't have imagined that. And you'd be quite right. In the days of wind sails, canvas sails, the horse and cart and a candle to write by. We could not have imagined that at all, and neither did he. But then atomic energy was speculated upon thousands of years ago. And that's true. If you go into the writings of the atomist organizations in ancient Greece, these supposed intellectuals, simply because they had nothing better to do but to pass their time wearing their white robes and chatting away, generally on the hilltops, and speculating that everything is composed of these minute particles that spin around each other, uh, worlds within worlds called atoms, which is just a play on Adam. That's what I think, actually. And it says the microcosm, uh, uh, everything is interrelated in this big joke. And it is too. The trick in all ages is to keep uh, real high sciences, which are 
constantly being investigated by special teams all down through the ages, secret from the public. To have ultimate control, you can never share all your high knowledge because sharing power means you lose power if you want to be dominant. Yet there's no doubt that Francis Bacon's book was published at that time. Not the updated versions that spin in aliens and all that kind of stuff. That's the new age spin that the elite have promoted to confuse us even further because it's much easier to believe the game's over if aliens superior to you run the whole world and always have. That's the purpose of having aliens out there. And that's called psychological warfare. The purpose being that you'd give up you give up before anything starts. In other words, if you think you see uh, the, the superior aliens running the world, you'd say, well, what's the point in fighting them? They're superior, you see. That's why they push um, certain people out there to tell you this and to really promote all this Anunnaki stuff. It's to make you think, my God, they, we were actually created to be an inferior slave, so we've got a peanut brain. How can we possibly match these massive-brained Anunnaki and rubbish like that, you see. It's very simple. Men do this. Man's awfully old, and they've done these techniques for thousands and thousands of years. Sometimes they use authors like H.G. Wells. Today there's a whole bunch of them being put up there to give us predictive programming, the idea being that if we accept it subconsciously as a possibility, then it can guide you with possibly uh, possibility upon possibility. And then when it becomes reality, you think it's a natural evolution. However, it's nothing of the kind. It's planned that way in advance, and it's called predictive programming. That's the term they use for it. We don't consciously think through things. These things seep into our minds by osmosis through repetition. And then when it really comes along, you think, well, what can we do? You know, I guess it was inevitable. That's what all these disaster movies are about you're watching right now. Once in a while, the elite in Britain, this elite being a very, very old elite called the establishment, they're there regardless of what party yells at each other across the parliamentary floor. The elite decide what's to be done. They pick the top politicians. It doesn't matter about the ones down below, and that's what Carl Quigley verified in his book, Tragedy and Hope. They all me- they are members of the CFR. They're allowed to compete for their own little share in the booty, the, the lower ones, that is, of the public purse and fame and glory and high contracts when they leave for lobbyist jobs. The ones at the top are always picked in advance and groomed before the public even hear their names, as long as the top cabinet uh, below to the Royal Institute, then everything is hunky-dory. As they belong, as you say, to the, to the Royal Institute, then everything is hunky-dory. I'm going to read you an article in a magazine that was written in the 1920s. Think about this. I'll tell you at the end which one it is and where to find it. On the cover, you will see a young British lord who could have been more than, more than 22 years of age. He's a hereditary lord. 22 years of age, with his big, long, braided wig on. You know, they wore a wig and a cloak when they got into the House of Lords. In the House of Lords, the guys who have the hereditary peer ships wear these long wigs and they get their robes with the ermine in it too, in the collar, ermine cloak. They dress like something from the 1700s. No one has ever explained the purpose of these particular wigs, but if you count the curls going up and down, you see the degrees. He has this young, arrogant face, as they all do, very solemn, stern, arrogant, and all-knowing. After all, he's an hereditary peer back after this. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix, having just described a young British lord, 22 years of age, standing there looking all arrogant and quite confident and quite naturally he should have been too, uh, according to the family he'd been born into. But this is from a, a magazine, this is the rest of it, it's from a, a magazine published in 1929. Now this guy knew uh, the Huxleys, he worked with them, he knew H.G. Wells, um, he knew Haldane, uh, in fact he used it, most of the stuff he's about, I'm about to read came from really Haldane's stuff. Haldane um, himself was quite the character you can find out about him. But it says here, uh, February 1929, babies will be produced by chemists in laboratories. And he was talking about the year, probably around 2029. Since the entire institution of marriage will be changed, we will live to be about 150. Well, that's for the elite themselves, you see. No one will need to work more than two hours a day. Agriculture will be abolished, except as a hobby. And all foodstuffs will be produced synthetically. Man will be able to alter the the geography of climate of the world, climate change. Coal mining will be an extinct industry. A 48-hour day will come into being by retarding the rotations of the earth. Sitting in our homes, we will see here and hear events the world over. He talked about television, actually, long before they had it. And he called it television, too. 1929, I'm going to continue here. He says, remember, this guy isn't sitting with a crystal ball. He's not channeling. He, he doesn't have a medium next to him from his channeling Zeta Reticuli or some faraway place. That's the thing with channelers, apparently. So he's, he's actually just telling you what he knows because he's sat in on the big world meetings with his peer group. He says, a century hence it appears probable that application of scientific discoveries will have altered the conditions of human life at least as much as they've done in the past hundred years. A child born in 1829 arrived in a world that was just beginning to exploit the steam engine in which electricity was the useless byway of a few professors where anesthetics and antiseptics were unknown. A child of 2029, looking back on 1929, will consider it as primitive and quaint as 1829 seems to the children of the present day. Our means of travel, our sources of wealth, our medicine, and even our ideas will change as drastically during the next century as it did in the course of the last. Applied physics which has given us a steam engine, the eternal combustion motor, as well as wireless telephones, and all the many other practical uses of electrical energy, will certainly make prodigious advances before the year 2029. At the moment, however, the theoretical basis of physics rests in an undetermined state. Physics is on the brink of a new synthesis, a a fresh simplification and restatement of fundamental ideas. This is when it comes, and it cannot long be delayed, but must radically change all our assumptions concerning time, space, and the nature of change. Such a revolution of ideas must be accounted amongst the most important effects of science upon human life in the next century, but it is, of course, very difficult to predict what direction this change of ideas will take. Until now, 
Newton, who states physical theory, one cannot determine how his restatement will react upon the everyday world. It's easier to prophesy concerning the material changes which will be brought by applied science in the next hundred years. The best scientific opinion believes that before 2029, physicists will have solved the problem of supplying the world with limitless amounts of cheap power. At present, we drive the energy which, which, which drives the wheel of industry from coal and oil. Both these substances are won from nature at the expense of much money and vast resources of muscular energy. Nor are their supplies inexhaustible. By means of the most efficient methods, however, a pound of coal can only be made to yield, yield energy of the order of one horsepower for one hour. Yet locked up in the atoms which constitute a pound of water, there is amount of energy equivalent to 10 million horsepowers per hour. Atomic atoms, right? 1929. There's no question that this colossal source of energy exists. No question, he says, so they already knew. Yet as physicists do not know how to release it or having done so, how to make it perform useful work, this problem will be solved before 2029. Some investigator at present in his cradle or unborn will discover the match with which to light this bonfire or the detonator needed to cause this terrific explosion. The consequences of tapping such stupendous sources of cheap energy are almost illimitable. For the first time in history, man will be armed with sufficient power to undertake operations on a cosmic scale. It will be opened to him to radically alter the geography or the climate of the world. By utilizing some 50,000 tons of water, the amount displayed by a larger liner, it would be possible to remove Ireland to the deeper portion of the Atlantic Ocean. The heat obtained from the same quantity of water, right? that's 50,000 tons of water, the same heat obtainable from it uh, would suffice to maintain the polar regions at the temperature of the Sahara for a thousand years. Yep, all that stuff was discussed a long, long time ago by those way up uh, where the real sciences were, the ones who were doing search, not research. Then it says the liberation of this energy naturally will revolutionize travel and transport. Engines weighing one ounce for each horsepower they develop will become practical possibilities, and a power plant of 600 horsepower will carry fuel for a thousand hours, working in a tank no bigger than a fountain pen. Concerning the nature of the vehicles from which such engines will provide the motive for power, it's rash to prophesy passengers will travel in enormously swift airplanes, which by 2029 will ascend and descend vertically. Goods will be carried cheaply and rapidly by land or sea, propelled by motors whose fuel bill will be almost nil. All this energy, you see, all this uh, combustion stuff is really obsolete. They knew that back then, too. The coming of this new energy obviously will be accompanied by acute social problems. Its adaptation to industry will entail, for example, the final extinction of coal mining. Since, however, it cannot put uh, uh, but vastly reduce the cost of oil manufacturers, it is hoped that the new wealth it creates will enable governments adequately to provide for the millions whose livelihood it destroys. Yeah, they're put in welfare. And it goes on to say here, that uh, they could also use winds, the wind and the tide, which will be forced to yield up their energy. Water power is to 
unevenly distributed over the Earth's surface and too much affected by seasonal variations ever to become the principal source of the world's energy. But the winds are never still, and the tides flow and ebb with unvarying precision. If the winds were harnessed, we could produce a superabundance of cheap power. During stormy weather, the surplus energy could be stored in a variety of ways and so be available during calms. And then it goes on to say, I'll break for a second time here to tell you that this character, this Lord, had been given access to a future already decided upon. The reason being he was an hereditary peer of the realm, a lord who gains access to the business plan. Because the world is a big, long business plan. And they never change their plans. Never. They never do. To continue the exploitation of uh, cheap energy uh, and and um, of tidal energy presents difficulties were as yet uh, to be solved in a satisfactory manner. These difficulties, however, are not those of principle, but of technique and of the wealth and the serious engineering attention of the world if it were focused on the question for ten years. There's no doubt that they would be overcome. The tides of the Bay of Fundy alone could supply the whole of North America with electrical energy by utilizing the energy to any large extent, which will diminish the speed of the Earth's rotation. As it is, the tides act as a break upon the rotation of the Earth. These guys think big, you know. They're even talking about that happening with the largest um, uh, water system put into China. It's the largest on the planet, man-made uh, reservoir really, and it's for um, creating hydroelectricity, that that might actually slow the rotation of the world. That was in the paper a couple of weeks ago. And then it says here, it, as it is, the tides of the axis are break upon the rotation of the earth. Tidal friction occurs principally in the Bering Sea, which divides Alaska from Siberia. Its present effect is negligible, since it does lengthen the day by a fraction less than a second in the course of each century. If sufficient energy were extracted from the tides to supply every imaginable future development of human enterprises with power, this breaking effect would not be greatly increased. Many millions of years would elapse before the day grew as long as our present week. Five thousand years takes us back to the dawn of recorded human history. And he was joking there because they've got a lot older history than the stuff they give to the public. So even a tenth part of one million years carries us forwards beyond the reach of imagination. We would not therefore grow alarmed that by harnessing the tides we shall so retard rotation of the earth as to embarrass our remotest descendants. Um, but the 48th hour a day is possible in the far future. During the next hundred years, applied physics will certainly develop wireless telephony and television beyond our present most imaginative expectations. Now, remember, television, even black and white, didn't come in until much, much, much later. By 2029, it would be possible for any person sitting at home to be present at no matter what distant event using stereoscopic television. In full natural colors and perfected wireless telephony will enable him to see and hear any event which is broadcast as effectively as if he stood behind the transmitting apparatus. Such developments must influence the future of politics, but by their aid it will be feasible once more to revive that form of democracy which flourished in the city-states of ancient Greece. By 2029, the chosen spokesman of each political party will be able to address every voter as effectively as they now can address the House of Commons, and so the electorate itself, rather than its representatives, make 
or made uh, decide each vital political issue. He also goes on in this article too to talk about uh, uh, how it will be almost too easy to control the people, by the way. And too irresistible, he actually says, for any government not to use uh, electricity and electrical techniques to control the minds of the general public. And he goes on too about computers. Applied chemistry has not affected human life in a manner comparable with changes produced by physical research. So far, the ordinary man's concern, chemistry is only useful to him when it discovers new um, desirable substances or discovers a means of synthesizing materials more cheaply than is produced in nature. In the past, chemists have enriched the resources of humanity with new metals and dyes and drugs, explosives and other substances useful in industry or private life. Uh, by 2029, thousands more such new substances will be available. Aluminium will be cheaper than pig iron is today, which it is actually. Malleable and unbreakable glass will be common place of domestic life. It's also been suggested that chemical research will turn the discovery of new physiologically pleasant substances, it's talking about drugs and stuff. At present, civilized mankind has discovered and adapted, uh, adopted in the three such substances, such as tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine for tea and coffee. These certainly have added enormously to the amenities of existence, and Dr. J.B.S.'s Hal Dane has proposed that chemists should seriously consider a search for many more such, addic- uh, such additions to human enjoyment. Most chemical substances are either disagreeable or dangerous in their psychological effects or physiological effects, though a small number, not more than a few thousand, are valuable to medicine. Should chemistry in the next hundred years be able to discover a dozen substances as pleasant and as harmless as tobacco, each producing a different effect on the consumer, it would have earned the thanks of every hard-working man and woman in the world. And then here you go. Any developments in physics and chemistry which recently made and predicted to occur before 2029 do no more than alter the accidents of human existence and biology. However, developments may be predicted which will change the whole nature of life as we experience it today. Even those who know least about the confidently and confidently expect prodigious advances from medicine and surgery in the near future and their faith will not be in vain if they have faith in it. The abolition of epidemic diseases by 2029 is fairly certain as is the discovery of cures of such scourges as cancer and tuberculosis. Well, they've got all that stuff, but they can't give it to the public because then they're complaining about overpopulation. Anesthesia, a painless childbirth. Um, biologists by 2008 will have learned the secrets of the living chemistry of the human body, at least long enough of it to achieve startling results. Rejuvenation will be an ordinary and will recognize matter of a few injections at the appropriate intervals. And of course, that's where the big boys get like Rockefeller and Strong and all these guys and Kissingers and Brzezinski's. The desire to keep old age at bay has ever been one of the dreams of humanity. At last, we can predict that it will be achieved. Now, that's been announced a few times, even the other geneticist um, uh, that talks on Canadian television said it's possible now to make a person live to 500 if they so desire. Uh, it says, this mortal must be put off immortality by extending the length of his days on the earth. The attraction of such an idea, especially to women, who will no longer grow old quickly, is far too clear to require emphasis. 
but the universal practice of rejuvenation will be accompanied by grave social problems, the least of which would be the immensely increasing population. So they can't give it to everyone. That's why we're still getting radiation poisoning to kill cancers. Suppose it's possible to guarantee 150 years of life to every healthy child. How will the youths of 20 be able to compete with the professions or in business with, against vigorous men still in their prime at 120 with a century of experience on which to draw? The benefit to humanity which will accrue if the lives of men of genius are so prolonged, so it will be kept for men of genius, you see, is obvious. Hereditary is determined by certain genes. Now, again, we're talking about the early 20s here, 1920s. They'd already found the genes, by way, by then, not much later with Watson. They already knew what the genes were. In fact, Haldane himself, they took most of the stuff from, uh, Birkenhead, that is, took from, um, was a geneticist. So hereditary is determined by certain genes or units concerning the science, which already knows much. They are minute bodies, so small that if a hen's egg were magnified to the size of the world, one of the genes in it would be on a fair-sized dining table. When biologists can control these, they will be able to control hereditary. And he talks about uh, how they could get use, get rid, basically, of undesirable traits and undesirable uh, carriers of those traits as well. He also talks about... Uh, um, most probably by 2029, a clever young man will consider his fiancée's hereditary complexion before proposing marriage, so he's in eugenics. And the young woman of that day will refuse him because he has inherited a gene from his father which will predispose their children to quarrelsomeness. Now we'll be back with more just after this break, so hold on. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. Just reading an article published 1929 by the, the young lord, 22 years old actually, uh, Birkenhead I think it was, and um, a very important person in British uh, higher up politics. They didn't play politics at that level, he was in the House of Lords, but uh, he got most information from Haldane, uh, who was uh, a geneticist himself and quite the character. He loved to kill people after finding out that in World War I uh, that it was fun, he said, and he'd like to go back and kill more. But anyway, uh, they were all eugenicists. And this article continues um, about uh, intelligent combinations of suitable genes. It will be possible to predict with reasonable certainty that the truly brilliant children shall be born out of the marriage. So they, they, they're talking about recombining genes and enhancing them. It is possible, however, but that by 2029, the whole question of human hereditary and eugenics will be swallowed up by the prospect of ectogenetic birth. That's outside the womb. This has meant that the development of a child from a fertilized cell outside of its mother's body in a glass vessel filled with a serum on a laboratory bench. Such proceeding is neither incredible nor indeed impossibly remote. The result of much research shows that the connection between a mother and a growing child are purely chemical. There is no valid reason why one day biologists should not be able to perform or perfectly to imitate that chemical connection in the laboratory. 
And so they'd already been trying all this stuff back then, by the way. So love, love bonding is just nonsense according to them, you see. The possibility of ectogenetic children, that's outside the, the, the womb, will naturally arouse the, the fiercest antagonism. Uh, religious bodies of many different creeds will re- rally their adherents to fight such a fundamental biological invention. In fact, the near mention of its possibility here may strike many readers as gratuitously disgusting. Nevertheless, the thing is possible, and since it's possible, it's certain that scientists will be deterred by no persecution from straining after it. All the reactions of the public are already figured out in advance. So that was what I say here. And overcome when they announce these things. All the debating or, or the problems they foresee are debated and overcome before they tell us any of this stuff. And it's true, they work out all re- our reactions and even put front guys out there to pretend they're on your side as they do a, a show debate and then, of course, they compromise, and on it goes. That's how it works. It says, should ectogenesis ever become an established part of the human society, its effects will be shattering. Primarily, it will separate reproduction from marriage, and that was a big thing that G. Wells wanted to do. Emotion is free from sexual intercourse itself. Primarily, it will separate reproduction from marriage, and the latter institution will become wholly changed. Further, the character of the future inhabitants of any state could be determined by the government, which happened temporarily to enjoy power. So the government will be in charge of the society, just like Brave New World. That's where Huxley got his idea from, too, the same character with Haldane. Remember, too, this character is the same age group as Aldo Huxley that wrote Brave New World in the 1930s. They all knew this stuff because they were in on the know. All the stuff they're talking about had already been done secretly a long time ago. Further, the character of the future inhabitants of any state could be determined by the government. I'll say again that the characters of the future inhabitants of any state could be determined by the government which happened temporarily enjoy power by regulating the choice of ectogenetic parents of the next generation. It says, the, the, I'll just finish by saying, the cabin of the future could breed a nation of industrial dullards. That means morons, folks. Well, from Hamish Masser from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may the, your God or your gods go with you.